Welcome to the Book Evangelist podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marianne will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode three, in which we will be discussing Camp NaNoWriMo and exploring baseball and Regency balls with Shoeless Joe and Pride and Prejudice. Hey, Marianne. Hi, Lisa. Are you excited about Camp NaNoWriMo? I am always excited about Camp NaNoWriMo, even though my history with it is a little sketchy. I've never won. <laughs> I think I think I have, but maybe it was because I cheated. I'm not sure. It seems like cheating in camp is the way to go. <laughs> well, you can adjust your your uh, your goal. And it's possible that in the far distant mists of the past, before I just came to terms with losing all the time, that I may have like adjusted my goal to something more realistic for my progress. But I've so. never been sorry I tried. No, no. And I was thinking we should probably fall back and punt here and tell people what NaNoWriMo is and what Camp NaNoWriMo is, just in case they don't know. I can't imagine they wouldn't know, but... Well, I have to tell you that last... October, as we were getting ready for NaNoWriMo, I gave a presentation to a writing group about it, and almost no one in there had ever heard of NaNoWriMo. Where have they been? I don't, under a rock, maybe, with no books and no internet. Apparently. Okay. So NaNoWriMo is 50,000 words in 30 days of November. It's always November. It's my favorite holiday. (laughs) Me too. It's my favorite thing. (laughs) Um, I structure my whole world around it. Uh, when my sister got married in November and told me the date, she said, um, but don't worry, there's this room at the back of where we're having the wedding and you'll be able to write your novel still because she understood that, you know, certain things took precedence. And did you take time out of your writing to go to her wedding or did you sneak in the back and write a book? I mean, I worked ahead and then I caught up later. (laughs) There you go. You know, so some, some indication she would just get married that one time and it would be okay. It would be okay. So... NaNoWriMo itself, which is stands, by the way, for National Novel Writing Month, in case you don't know, people out there in the world, has a lot more rules than Camp NaNoWriMo does. NaNoWriMo itself is in November, as you said, and you have to write fiction. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. If you're going to f- play by the rules, which I do love me some rules, you have to write fiction, and it has to be a new book. You can't just add on to one you already had. And you can't start before November 1st, and you got to have 50000 Yes. But Camp NaNoWriMo is in April and July. Is July the other one? I think so, currently, okay. yeah. Okay, April and July. And it's much more freeform, as summer, summer camp should be, right? It's so freeform. I can't even rattle <laughs> off all the correct things. I don't know. You can do pretty much whatever you want. You can write. You can edit. You can write poetry. You can write short stories. You can write screenplays, I think. You can... Do whatever it is you want to do on your writing project, which does not have to be new. And you can set your own finish line goal. It can You can write 10,000 words or three hours or whatever it is that you think you want to go for. 
And I think you're still supposed to declare it in advance. You are. So what did you declare, Alyssa? Do you remember? I mean, I already changed it. But <laughs> no, I don't even remember. I think I wrote down 30,000 words. I think I wrote down 30,000 words. Which is it's kind a, of a... It's a thousand words a day. That's doable. It is a thousand words. It is doable. But on the other hand, I feel like on one hand, it's like kind of a kind of a lame goal because it's not enough for for me to have another complete first draft, even a short, you know, draft of something right. complete. But on the other hand, is is fairly lofty if I fail as badly as I can fail at camp. So we'll see. Maybe it's the perfect thing because it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe I should actually plan to write a novella. <gasps> what a great idea. I mean, I just thought of that, but then it would be like planning a complete project. That's kind of fun. Maybe I should do that. Clearly, clearly, clearly I'm very changeable and not committed to, to anything here. And I will state for the record that how many wins do you have at NaNoWriMo, Alyssa? I think um, I started in, I've won every November since 2003. Three. And I didn't come on board in 2012 until 2012, but I've won every November since 2012. So we have between us an excellent proven track record of reaching the goal in November. And both of us are pretty sketchy when it comes to camp. So why do you think we have more problems in camp? Um, there's not events. And I think it's because there's not events. You could be right. Less community based writing. There's intentionally less pressure, which apparently just means I am fine with that. Yeah. And goal-oriented people. Goal-oriented people. You could be right. Now, one thing that camp has is on the website, you join a cabin where you're supposed to like meet other people who encourage you onward to greatness. And I almost always join a cabin with you and other people uh, in our writing community. And this time I've decided not to do that because mostly I talk to you about Camp NaNoWriMo on like Messenger and Facebook groups and stuff like that. I just talk to you directly. So I don't use the cabin on the website. So this time I decided I would get random people to be in a cabin with, and maybe some of them will be actually active people uh, who I can talk to. I took the opposite strategy this time in an effort to succeed, because I think one of the reasons why I fail camp is because like I'm not in charge of it, and so I'm not accountable to make yeah. sure I keep encouraging people, sharing out my own progress to encourage them. And so then I just kind of fade away. So I'm trying harder this year to encourage people to actually do it and to be accountable that I'm going to do it and talk it up a little bit more than usual. Yeah, I think that was my job in our cabin last year. Is I don't know, because I faded away. You did. I sent you marshmallows. I remember that. You did? Yeah, I shared so, them with people. So, so you could make s'mores. I worked really hard to find suitable marshmallows for you. You sent wonderful vegetarian <laughs> and I had people over and we made s'mores. There you go. And then I didn't finish my writing. And anyway, well, there you, I don't think I finished my writing either. I was I was supposed to, I think last year I was supposed to be editing, but I didn't do it. But I have solved that problem now and I'm better at sticking with my editing goals and I have a better plan. So this year, 
I am planning, like I said, 30,000 words of a shiny new story. And um, I had a plan, right? An idea. It was a great plan. I did, I did, I did. I had a plan with characters and like I was had maybe three quarters of the synopsis written and I had done like technical research because it was a book set in space. I had done all this technical research on, on broken spaceships and how things would be and how you could work these engines based on on the thing that I needed to work them on and I had all kinds of stuff, and then I looked at it, and I said, this story is really dystopian and depressing, (laughs) and its big themes were hunger and abandonment, and I thought, I just cannot do it. I can't. That's not a spring story. No, it was just, I was just like, coming off of this long winter, and coming in here, I'm already, you know, not the cheeriest that I usually am, and... I just can't bring myself to do it. So I, I abandon it after announcing it to the world. I might add, I put it up on Instagram. This is what I'm doing. And I had gone and created my project and Camp NaNoWriMo's website and wrote down everything it was going to be about and its title and everything. And then I trashed the whole thing. But the dynamite, pressed the little lever and I'm starting completely over with a, what are we calling it here? We're calling it a, oh, Western fantasy, a humorous Western fantasy. That's because I don't know that I've ever read a humorous Western fantasy and the world needs more of them. So that's what I'm going to do. And we'll see. It's lovely. Well, we'll see what happens. And the good news is that I'm using it as like a personal thing. I don't have any ambitions for it or... I'm not worried about it going out in the world and being read by other people or anything like that. I'm just writing it for my own pleasure and amusement and as a break from the more uh, onerous task of editing my novel. Because going to camp should be fun. Should be fun. I'm going to attempt to write something fun and then that then I always fail. Well, but... what, what are you going to attempt to write that's fun this time? Um, I'm going to put some people... Um, in a co-working space, possibly a science lab, I think on a spaceship, but like a real big spaceship where I don't really have to talk about it very much because they're mostly going to be at work. I'm going to write workplace drama set in space and then have them, I don't know, have challenges that they confront. Well, if your spaceship breaks, I have a ton of research about that. Uh, That seems like a much bigger plot than I'm going for. (laughs) But maybe somebody who needs something will come to them. I think they're going to be problem solvers and then get into trouble. There you go. I was uh, watching yet another lecture video by Brandon Sanderson, and he was talking about different ways people build plots, which was super interesting to me. And he was talking about somebody who knows who uses the, what is it? Yes, but no and when they're writing. So like if they do a thing and it's successful, it's like, yes, this worked, but this other thing, or if it doesn't work, like, no, it doesn't work. And this happens. So you could do that. Just write yes, but no, and and stick it on a post-it note over your computer. That's basically as good of a plan as I have. I know. I was like, hey, I I have a chance with that. (laughs) Maybe this will work out for me on the, 
on the uh, planning front and see what happens. And I started to try to come up with characters, but I didn't get very far. And, but I mean, we have like days. We're days. This days. At the end of March, which means it's like not even April 1st yet. Hey, my cowboy has a name. I think that's pretty good. That's amazing. It is. And you were talking about maybe you could do a novella because the funny thing is just this morning at five o'clock in the morning when I was lying there in bed trying to deal with the fact that another day was happening and I was expected to get out of the bed and deal with it. I was thinking about uh, vintage pulp fiction westerns, particularly Deadwood, Deadwood Dick, right? And I was actually looking up to so I could read Deadwood Dick novels online. And they are, you know, campy and short. So I could write a campy, short Western novella like those vintage ones, except with demons, maybe. Have you ever read any adult Westerns? Very few other than True Grit. No, no, no. I mean, wink, wink, adult. Oh, Westerns. oh, um... Who? Uh, not not very many. I don't think I was. I last year when I was okay. Last year's main NaNoWriMo, I wrote or tried to write a romance novel, and it was a bloodbath. Just it was. I am not not gonna make it. Not smart enough to be a romance writer. But I read like a lot of romance novels beforehand, across the spectrum of romance novels, including. One with a cowboy in it. Does that count? No. Oh, man. I mean, but I'm proud of you. <laughs> a romance novel with a cowboy. And I feel like that will greatly inform your new book set in a, in a Western setting. Yeah. Adult Westerns are like these series. Like one is called Long Arm. And there's another one called... Oh, no, I can't remember. Like The Long Arm of the Law? No, kind of. Um, but there, it's a series. And the protagonist guy is the same in every book. Uh-huh. But the women are different in every book. So it's like James Bond. And they're sexy scenes. I had to read one in um, graduate school to be a librarian. Um, in this class called Adult Popular Fiction, we had to read several different kinds of Westerns. And one of them had to be an adult Western. And I couldn't believe that, like, seriously, that's how it was going to be. Like, that in this series, like, the guy would get a different girl in every book. So I read a couple more, and it was. Like, the guy gets a different girl in every book. In every book. And that's the series. And, um... But presumably, presumably these are, like, romance books for dudes. Yes. Okay. They're, like, adventure romance plot lines with sexy parts set in the West. Yeah, so... Traditional Western setting, not necessarily a traditional Western plot. So it's, like... James Bond is that book, but with spies. And then probably like Dirk Pitt novels. Doesn't he always have a different lady all the time? Or is he a good guy? I can't remember. Anyway, but so like you could have like action adventure ones with a different, different lady love interest for every novel. Yeah. So no, the answer, so the short answer is no, Lissa, I have not read a book like that. There. Well, maybe don't add romance to <laughs> No, no romance. No romance. I think I think I've learned that there should be no romance in my novella. It could sneak in. Maybe. It's a it's a B plot. Yeah. Because yes. you know, when I re- when I beta read, I'll be like, but see how they looked at these other people? I wondered what they were <laughs> thinking. It'd be fabulous. Okay. 
So sometimes on this podcast, we read the same things and talk about them, and we read new stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just come out, and it's very exciting. But for this episode, we've read not new stuff. Right. We've read two books that are long-time favorites of yours, neither one of which I had read before. And I think both, I mean, they're not, necess- I mean, one of them is definitely a classic, but the other one is sort of like a classic-ish title. I think it counts as a classic. Modern a classic. Modern classic. Certainly with the movies. They, they made a movie. They the made movies a movie. make them that kind of classic where everybody kind of knows what you're talking about. Right. So probably more people, they're Shoeless Joe and Pride and Prejudice, and probably more people have seen the movie of Shoeless Joe than have read the book. Definitely. And I I am going to tell you that I have wondered for a long time how many Jane Austen super fans who are everywhere, like there's mugs and bookmarks and t-shirts with Jane Austen all over this world, how many of them have read her books and how many have just seen the television shows and movies based on her books? I think that is a fair thing to wonder. And I have absolutely no scientific data to to add to that at all. And would they tell the truth? And would they tell the truth? Yes. Do do if somebody comes to you and says, "Well, have you you know done this? Why? Yes, I've read them all." You're going to say because there's no way to prove you have not. Maybe we can make a super fan test and administer it. <laughs> With do we get to put electrodes on them like a lie detector test for? Have you read Emma? Yes. Zap. 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 If they lie. full of facts. (laughs) Well, well, I don't know. I mean, if I gave you quotes from, and I'm going to presume that you have read more than one Jane Austen novel. I have read Uh, all the Jane Austen novels. See, whereas Pride and Prejudice was my first one, and I'm just going to admit that right out. You're so brave. I know. And it's like, you know, go ahead and judge me, world. I don't care. I love me, and that's enough. Um but if I gave you a quote from Emma and a quote from Pride and Prejudice, could you tell the difference? Um, I mean, it would depend on the quote. I last read all of Jane Austen straight through when I was pregnant with Kivrin, so like 11 years ago. Okay, so it's been a while, so you might. And I've read bits and pieces since then. Right. But I don't think I've read... Uh, I'm not sure I've read any of them... I've probably read Pride and Prejudice since then. Could be. Like, I like Shakespeare plays, but I have not read them all. And if you give me random Shakespeare quotes, I may or may not remember exactly which play it's in, dependent on the quote, as you said, and uh, how recently I've been involved with that particular play. Right. And when I read them all, because I had a book club where we read all of them, um, like once a month, um, which was lovely. Um, that wasn't the first time for any of them. So did your book club then, after it was done with the Jane Austen books proper, do all the the uh, diaspora Jane Austen books, like the Jane Austen book club and uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? And It was before Pride, Prejudice and Zombies. We did do Jane Austen book club, because I think that's why we did that okay so you like started with that one and then you said oh we should go read all the Jane Austen books maybe huh. that's fascinating and I like the book Jane Austen book club and I like that movie yeah. 
I haven't read that one or seen the movie either. So apparently, I need to get out more. Is what we're someday saying someday. It's gonna get me to read Ursula Le Guin. It's all like reading is all just like one big well, jump I, from one book to the next. I have read Ursula Le Guin, so you know at least some of it, not all of it, because there's a lot of it. But I read, you know, like The Wizard of Earthsea and stuff like that back in the day. I haven't read anything yet, but I will. We will. That's right. It's the infinite TBR. It really is. <laughs> okay, so you read Pride and Prejudice. I did read Pride and Prejudice. And I read serials via the Serial Reader app, which sends me a little snippet of the text every morning at 5 o'clock. And it might, it tells me how many minutes it's going to take me to read it. And some of the ones in Pride and Prejudice were a lot of minutes. The first book I had read in a book I'm reading now maybe eight or 10 or 15 minutes, but some of the episodes in Pride and Prejudice were like 25 minutes. So they were more strugglesome for me to get through in the amount of time I had allotted in my day for it. And so it came in 40 bite-sized pieces uh, delivered daily. Did it, was it bite-sized? I mean, did it feel, you said some were kind of long. Some were kind of long and compared to, so the first, this is, like I said, I'm on my third book with this app. The first book was The Scarlet Pimpernel, which was a book I should have read and had never read. So I'm like, I'll read it. And they're all classic books. And it was like a snap, right? It's giving me eight, 12 minutes, bam, that's done and I'm out of there. And then when I picked Pride and Prejudice next and some of the episodes were 20, 25 minutes long, I had to readjust my schedule. So some of them felt a little strenuous and... I don't know how the app divides up a book because sometimes the the section that I got, it wasn't like a single chapter. It would pick up where it left off and then it might lop over into the next chapter and then stop. Weird. Uh-huh. And it, but it stopped usually between scenes or at the end of a scene so that there was variability in the amount of book that you were getting. But I think some of them were so long because of the structure that the book has, has all those really long letters in it, really long letters. So then if Darcy is writing the world's longest letter to... Which he does. Which he does to Lizzie, then you've got to read the whole thing because they're not going to stop that in the middle of his letter. They're going to... They could come back, but they might stop between... After she reads the letter and you know, clutches it to her bosom, then you might stop there and pick up the next day and find out what happens next. So what do, do you think of the characters? Well, I was going to say, do you want to um, do the Goodread synopsis of this book just in case there's anyone on the face of the earth who does not know the basic plot line of Pride and Prejudice? Yes. Okay. I looked it up so I can put it there because I'm always interested in what the summary or synopsis of a book is versus the entirety of it, what it's not telling you and what it is. So I have it here. You ready? Yes. So it says, since its immediate success in 1813, Pride and Prejudice has remained one of the most popular novels in the English language. Jane Austen called this brilliant work her own darling child, and its vivacious heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, as delightful a creature as ever appeared in print. The romantic clash between the opinionated Elizabeth and her proud beau, Mr. Darcy, is a splendid performance of civilized sparring, and Jane Austen's radiant wit sparkles as her characters dance a delicate quadrille of flirtation and intrigue, making the book 
the most superb comedy of manners of Regency England. So that's like big promises. What did I think of the characters? Well, it took me a while to learn to like them, quite frankly. And I felt bad because so many people love them so much. And I can't tell you the number of people that I've seen where they're asked, like, what character in literature would do you most admire? Or who would you most like as a friend? Or who would you most like to be? They say Lizzie Bennet. Did you say that's a true story? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of time. time. That's, that's, I want to be Lizzie Bennet. And it took me a while to warm up to her and to almost everybody in this book uh, yeah. in some ways because she is super clever and she says really um, uh, sharp, cutting, witty things. But sometimes, particularly toward the beginning of the book, she would say things that I thought were just downright mean. They were just, they were not, um, they're making fun of people instead of making fun with people, if that makes sense. And yeah, really, she's not with people at the beginning. Yeah, she really bitter. And, and I was like, well, she has to be like this because she's prejudice, right, in the title. And if she wasn't prejudiced at the beginning, she couldn't grow as a character and change and see how you shouldn't go around being publicly biting toward every single person that you know. Um, and on the other hand, look who she knows. They're all awful people. <laughs> Her mother is um, stupid and petty um, and ridiculous. And of her four sisters, we have Jane, right? The good one. The good one. Jane is just so, so good. And then we have Lydia, who's just awful and unchangingly terrible. She's like her mother, but worse. And then there's Mary. Yes. Right? Mary. And is Mary the bookish one? Uh-huh. Always off reading a book or playing an instrument. Doesn't have time for you. Antisocial. And Kitty, right? Yes. And Kitty is like Lydia Light, but does change her ways somewhat. But it's just as silly and vapid as her sister. And then you have the awful neighbors and the awful friends and the awful relative, Mr. Collins, and they're all awful, awful people. And it took me a long time to get into it because of that. And then I had a thought. Yes. Which is that probably my most favorite book in the world is The Great Gatsby by Scott Fitzgerald. And my copy of it is falling apart and so covered in annotations that it's almost unreadable. And I've spent a lot of time with it and thought through it. And it provides me something new every time I read it. But lots of people don't like it. And that's okay with me, by the way. And I, I always think one problem Gatsby has is that people read it in high school and they never with, read it again. And so they just have done worksheets about it? Well, yeah. But also, it's really a book about people who've been battered by life or knocked down by life or seen the, the worst side of life. And I don't feel like when you're 15, you're there yet. Maybe some bad stuff has happened, but not enough bad stuff for you to understand Gatsby. No, because um, you're mostly looking for like people to admire in that book. Right. In high school. Right. And there's really, they're not admirable people. No. They're complicated people and interesting people who do complicated, interesting stuff. And they're telling you stuff, but they're telling you stuff 
because it's an advanced reader book in which you're supposed to fill in the blanks or make logical um, assumptions and jumps and fill in everything and interact with it more, which is not something that people who are 15 and filling out worksheets are particularly awesome at in many instances. So I know lots of people who come back to Gatsby at, at 40 and suddenly it's a different book for them. So I thought, you know, Marion, you're being pretty harsh with all the characters in Pride and Prejudice, but your complaints about them are the same complaints that people have about Gatsby, that Daisy isn't likable. Well, of course, Daisy isn't likable. She's dreadful, you know. Of course, Tom Buchanan isn't likable. He's awful. What a horrible, horrible man. Anybody's <laughs> supposed to be. So I had to come back to Pride and Prejudice and say, yes, all these people are awful, but maybe they're a foil for this or an object lesson in, for example, the, the various marriage choices that the female people in the book make. Maybe that is Jane Austen talking to me about marriage being the ultimate endpoint for Regency women, the, ba the basic goal that we have, and the choices that people make to get there and whether or not those choices are, are good ones that will help them long-term or work out well for them long-term. And I think if you're going to have the most superb comedy of manners of Regency England, you have to have a lot of awful things and people and dialogue and social interactions so that it can be awkward and so that, so that it can be a comedy so that you can end up laughing at parts of it. Probably. And I did laugh at parts of it because they are ridiculous. So do you love Lizzie Bennet? Do you want to be her? No, I do not want to be her. Um, do I love her? I like her. I would have her for a friend. She's a good conversationalist, I guess, especially after she stopped being so harsh with everybody all the time. Um, actually, my favorite character in the book was Darcy, yeah. uh, followed closely by Lizzie Bennet's aunt and uncle from London, who were just really nice people and caring and smart and aware of what was going on around. But I like Darcy who I don't think it's ever spelled out in a book, but I think his main thing is that he's terribly, terribly shy. He is. He's like shy and awkward and lovely. So do you want to be Lizzie Bennet? Um, I mean, there are times I want to be more like Lizzie Bennet, but not all the times. So um, which parts of her would you like some, to be like? Yeah. Um. I mean, the parts when she's, like, strong and committed to an idea and really loyal. I like those parts. Um, my um, uppercase box last month came with a Pride and Prejudice necklace. Um, and it's lovely, and I've been wearing it. And it says, um, headstrong, obstinate girl. And which is the quote from um, the scene with. Lizzie Bennet and Darcy's horrible aunt. That's what I was wondering. So this is interesting to me because this is, you're wearing it, and I saw your picture on Facebook and it looked very good. Thank you. But this phrase is being used to, like, your self-labeling as an obstinate, headstrong girl. But it's an right. insult in the book. It's meant as an insult. Right. I So, like, I feel like you have to wear that necklace sort of, like, ironically, or like you have to understand that it's the literary reference and that 
and that if you don't roll over and do what other people tell you you have to do, they may insult you. There you go. It's, it's interesting that's because why I like it. And the, that's why I like her. The other quote that I have seen used a lot from that book is about the pleasure of reading books, uh, which I don't have the exact quote with me, but it's you see it all the time on like, you know, engraved bookmarks and t-shirts and I don't know, people's Instagram things. But the line is delivered in a novel by Mr. Bingley's sister, who really doesn't like reading books and doesn't get why reading books is good and is a shallow individual who's just saying it because she wants to look good in front of Mr. Darcy or appear to be interested in the same things that he's interested in. So he'll fall in love with her and marry her. So I was interested to see that quote too, which is a true quote for somebody like you or me or the people who are using it is spoken by a character who is pretty much lying about right. her thing. Which is why, yeah, I don't know. So like when you read a comedy of manners book, then like you have to, you can't take all the quotes out of context without realizing that you're taking them out of context because like headstrong, obstinate girl for me isn't, I'm proud of being headstrong or obstinate, right? It's but it's like, a good characteristic in you. Right, like I acknowledge that I'm going to try to make more choices that may make people unhappy, but which I feel like are the right choice. And I'm going to own that and be okay with it. There you go. But it's, again, back to like how many people have actually read Pride and Prejudice versus people who say they have read it or say it's their favorite book or that they love it. Maybe they don't know that that quote is where it's coming from. Or an insult, yeah, that the awful, awful, awful aunt of Mr. Darcy who we pretty he pretty much kicks to the curb and you're like, good job, Darcy, um, is saying horrible things to Lizzie Bennet. Right. I don't feel like Lizzie Bennet is necessarily headstrong or obstinate. Maybe not by modern standards, but by 1813 standards, I'll bet she is, because she's very forthright. She'll tell you what she thinks. Right, um, but she's more like forthright. Yeah. But doesn't make a good necklace. <laughs> True. <laughs> doesn't forthright. <laughs> A uh, really forward-thinking for 1813 girl is probably too much to put on a necklace. Right, like loyal and true. Like, not the same. So the fact that this was written in 1813 is interesting to me because that makes it 200 years old? 206 years old? Yeah. So a really old book. And I did think it read very well for a book of that vintage. It's very readable. But I, and this is something that's going to come up with Shoeless Joe as well. I'm really interested in form and the form of novels and how they take and whether this form, which is, it's a very readable book. It's a good patronary. You can, you know, I didn't have any problems with it and I enjoyed its form, including the long letters and the, the witty conversations um, where to me, the strengths of the book was there. But... Form-wise, you can't write that book anymore. And I mean, you can write it, but you can't sell it. And, and you any, might not be able to get your beta reader through. Yeah, and your beta reader is going to come back and say, you got to get rid of these long letters in here, or this scene does not have enough conflict and forward propulsion in it, or whatever. So do you think if Jane Austen were writing today that she would make it? 
and become a beloved uh, superstar of English literature. I mean, yes, but I think her editor would fix the things that you just brought up. But don't you think those are the pleasurable parts of the book? I think yes. And yes, and I think a good editor would still fix them and make them modern so that if we were supposed to believe this was a book being published in 2019, even if it was a historical book set in 1813, that it would still read differently. See, that would be a really fun rewrite. Instead of Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, it would just be like Pride, Prejudice, and Marketable Fiction Editors. Well, people do rewrite this book from time to time. All the time. Over here on my shelf, I have not read it yet, have a copy of Pride, which came out a few months ago, not very long ago, and is a rewrite of Pride and Prejudice set in Harlem. I know. I'm looking forward to it. I just haven't gotten there yet. And there are always new versions of Pride and Prejudice coming out, new reimaginings of it. Um, I'm trying to remember, I have a friend who just read one that was set in India because the concept of arranged marriage is still more relevant there than it is in modern day Unmarriageable? Unmarriageable, that's it. Thank you. Very good. And I can't remember who wrote it. But she enjoyed it very much. And it was just like this, this plot and it's constraints work really well in that particular modern setting and that's been my experience with um the movie versions um because when they adapt the movie versions of pride and prejudice if they try to make it not um not set in 1813 then they have to set it in some sort of culture where um where it makes sense for marriage to be so important where it makes sense for chastity to be so important. Um, Otherwise, it doesn't work as well. So you can set it in high school. Right. um, Or you can set it in India. Or you can set it, um, like my favorite movie adaptation, is set in a community that's a Latter-day Saints community um, around a Latter-day Saints college where, um, where everyone is concerned about both marriage and chastity. Um, But if those things aren't important to the people and to the characters then like the main tensions of Pride and Prejudice don't work yeah I can see that I was thinking I was trying to think of movie adaptations of Austin novels that are differently set Clueless is one right that's yeah that's Emma not not Pride and Prejudice but it works very well because of Emma's characteristics or how who who Emma is Right, both the high school setting and then also the upper, upper, upper class. Right. Hmm. So if you abandon, or maybe I should say, since it's you, when you abandon your first Camp NaNoWriMo novel, you could do a modern resetting of Pride and Prejudice. I could. I could. Or I could put Pride and Prejudice on my spaceship. On your spaceship. There you go. And one of the people in my co-working space could be a Bennett sister. And then... (laughs) Oh my gosh, we're ruining this. I mean, making it better. Yes, making it different, making it different. It's a reimagining. So, yes, there you go. There's another free idea, Pride and Prejudice (laughs) in Space. Oh my gosh, and now it's going to (laughs) happen. 
but I didn't just reread Pride and Prejudice, so maybe you should write Pride and Prejudice. No, 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 no. I'm sticking with my humorous Western fantasy. Mm-hmm. Sure I am. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. When your character shows up at the ranch that has the five daughters, we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay, I'm definitely keeping him away from all ranches. No ranches for him. No, not any with five daughters. Or sure. not, maybe not with five daughters. I don't know. Uh, it's set my book is set in Deadwood South Dakota so the ladies he meets are less likely to be virtuous than the Bennett sisters are Uh, although Lydia you know maybe Lydia she shows up she's an immoral little thing see I will say the one thing I wanted to happen in this book that did not happen was that I really wanted Lizzie and or particularly Jane to just go off on Lydia you know say Look what you did, you awful, awful person. And not only were you prepared to ruin yourself, but to take all of us with you and destroy any chance we have of being successful in this society by being like you are. But they never do. The Mr. Bennett just makes sideways comments. Mrs. Bennett is just perfectly happy because she's Mrs. Bennett. And uh, sisters who know how things are and know who paid the debt and how close your mother's thing is, never like turn on her and give it to her. So when Lydia comes through and her going into dinner and she turns to Jane, she says, well, Jane, you know, you'll have to move down the table now because I'm a married lady and married ladies have higher ranks. So you lose your chair. I just wanted Jane to turn around and pop her one, you know. I think that's the genius of Austin. Austin lets you have the feelings. She doesn't <laughs> tell you. Okay. I'll try. So I have to. I have to be content with my own wishes and and reimagine it, uh, going down the way I want it to, instead of uh, because they're all so darn nice. And well, you don't have to. You get to. Like Jane gives you that space. Because probably most people who read that book are gonna be like, "Oh, she's so awful." Exactly. Good. I will say that while I have not read my Jane Austen, I have read a lot of Georgette Hare. And, you know, there's, in terms of novel history, there's a time gap. So Austin writes these books in the early 1800s. And then nobody's writing Regency romance novels, for the most part, until you get to Georgette Hare, who starts writing them um, in the second third of the 20th century, shall we say. I think she writes her first book at the age of 19, which is The Black Moth. But I don't know exactly what year it came out. And then she continues writing Regency romances in the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s, I think, even. And reinvents the whole concept of Regency romance and gives birth to the giant Regency romance industry that you see. Which I love. Now, I do, too. I love Regency romance. Of all the romance novels, Regencies are my thing. And earlier I was thinking about, we're talking about the requirements of being a girl in 1813. And if you're a modern Regency romance novelist... And you want to have a strong, proactive um, heroine, but in 1816, you have to think of ways within the Regency framework that she can be that person. Yeah, because otherwise that's not believable. Right. Or or she has to have social consequences of it that are believable. But I love Georgette Hare novels, and they are all comedies of manners. You might get you might get a peck on the cheek, a small kiss there at the very, very end of the book. Uh 
but they're more or less about the characters and uh, the fun you have with those characters and the conversations that they have. So in that way, they really reflect back to the original with Jane Austen here. I haven't read Georgiana Hare, but I've read like, um, I don't know, four or 500 other Regency romances. <laughs> I think you have like layers and layers and layers. So if Jane Austen, original Georgette Hare, reinvents that. And then modern uh, romance, Regency romance novelists, if they're long ones and not like small Hallmark ones, they add in the, the naughty bits there, which Georgette Hare does not do. But I would recommend them to you, and I can I can recommend you which ones I think you should start with if you want to read Georgette Hare novels. I think you tried to read Sylvester or not Sylvester, The Grand Sophie. I think that is the one I was supposed to read. I'll right. go back and, and try to read it's, that. It's not my favorite of all of them, but it's a fine one. I think you should read Frederica instead. Frederica. You would okay. like Frederica very, very much. Um, and... Um, I like Arabella as well, quite a bit. It's very funny. But then again, one of my favorite of her books is The Foundling, which is strange for a romance because our hero is unusual for this genre in that he is Adolphus Gillespie Vernon Ware, sixth Duke of Sale. But he's a small person and very shy, and he lets people like trample him all the time he's always deferring to things and it's like really the book's about his personal growth into a man who makes his own decisions and does what he wants but his love interest hardly appears in the book at all we see her he's being forced to ask her to marry him at the beginning of the book and then we see her three or four times over the course of it until near to the end when she shows back up again but for a romance novel the heroine hardly appears in it at all it's really about him interesting yeah so but i like that book too yeah I'll try that there you go so if you need to fill your austin gap having read all of her novels at least once or more than once and you're looking for more uh regency romance novels that clearly owe a debt to jane austen i'd recommend georgia Hare. excellent and off the top of my head i can name some modern regencies that are good, but then I can never remember which ones were sexy and which ones weren't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, I know I like Eloisa James. Yeah, I, I like Eloisa. I like Eloisa James as well. I can't remember if those are sexy ones or not. Very, yes. Sometimes I just skip the sexy parts. and Like, for me, it's like, <laughs> me too, is it making me laugh? Are the characters, like, fun people? Yeah, I'm like you. I, I, I tend them. to, I'll like follow the conversation up and then dip a couple pages and I keep going if I'm not interested in that at this point in time. So, but she, Eloise James does have interesting characters and good conversations and is really good at world building uh, in terms of being believable within the confines that she's got going on. So speaking of people who are having to live in a specific set of societal rules or who are expected to behave in a certain way. A second book that we're going to discuss today is Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, which has a main character who definitely is doing some stuff that the people in his society of modern day Iowa would think were a little strange. For sure. And we go straight from Regency England to Iowa in baseball. 
Um, the Goodreads description of Shoeless Joe is, of course, the, the famous quote, if you build it, he will come. These mysterious words inspire Ray Kinsella to create a cornfield baseball diamond in honor of his hero, Shoeless Joe Jackson. What follows is a rich, nostalgic look at one of our most cherished national pastimes and a remarkable story about fathers and sons, love and family, and the inimitable joy of finding your way home. Okay, I don't think that's what that book is about. Maybe thematically it is, but it doesn't tell me what happens in it, that's for sure. Right? And then I had to talk people at my library book club into reading this, and I had to say things like, so you know the movie Field of Dreams? So James Earl Jones is not a character in this book. (laughs) And then they would just look at me like, what are you making us read? Um, But the discussion went really well at my library book club, even though what I really wanted to do the whole time was talk about it with another writer. So I'm glad we get to talk about it. And another baseball fan. And another baseball fan. Um, I would say this book is... Well, I don't even know how to describe this book, but it's about a man who um, is not fulfilled by his life and as a like an insurance salesman and then becomes a farmer and is not particularly fulfilled by that either. And then has a here's a voice that tells him to plow under his cornfield and build a baseball diamond um, in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. And then can see baseball players playing on it, right? But it doesn't clearly say on the front of the book that this is a fantasy novel and the library doesn't shelve it in fantasy. And or a magical realist book. Or a magical realist. Um, and then he decides that he's supposed to go kidnap J.D. Salinger and take him to a baseball game. So, I mean, as a writer, I'm like, how do I get people to kidnap me and take me to baseball games? (laughs) Even if it was the Red Sox. Goal, even if it was the Red Sox. I mean, baseball is baseball. I mean, like, I think I'm glad they don't put a lot of this on the back of the book, because who would pick it up? It it is an interesting book in terms of how you sell it, which is something I do want to talk about. But I would say, you know, I've been reading... Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which yes. has these genre definitions in it. And in terms of what this book is about, according to Save the Cat, it would fall into the Golden Fleece category of what it is, which is road trips and quests and heists. So the Save the Cat people would tell you it has the same story arc or plot points or whatever as other books in this category, including Ready Player One by Ernest Cline and The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, The Canterbury Tales, Gulliver's Travels, Alice in Wonderland, The Fellowship of the Ring, On the Road. Um, all the same book, apparently. Um, okay, you ter- lost me at the beginning <laughs> with that list. But then by the end of your list, you kind of had me. Like, right. it's, a, it's a big quest story, and you're along for a ride that will go a little wild, and you're just going to have to go with it and trust that the author has a plan. Right, so... A golden fleece story must have a road, and this can be a physical road or a metaphorical road or both. So this is, this book does have a physical road in it and that the main character, Ray Kinsella, who's telling us the story, does have to leave his farm in Iowa and travel all over the United States with both to get J.D. Salinger and kidnap him and 
afterwards the quests that they have and a golden fleece book needs a team or a buddy could be in this case his buddy is jd salinger right yeah um and maybe later the oldest living chicago cub eddie is that his name Yes. Okay. And you need a prize, something primal that's sought after, such as getting home, securing a treasure, freedom, reaching an important destination, or gaining a birthright. So I would say that it does have all of those things. So if you need to tell people what kind of book this is, you can tell them it's a golden fleece book. I don't think that's going to make them pick it up anymore, (laughs) but... Um, the front of my copy has a quote from Sports Illustrated that says, a moonlit novel about baseball, dreams, family, the land, and literature. Interesting. I listened to it on audiobook, um, and I enjoyed it immensely. I'm just going to say that right up front. I really did enjoy it. But the audiobook narrator, I went back and forth on whether or not I liked it or not, because... He has a very, have you, you've listened to this audio book? I listened to it on okay. audio, yeah. He has a very distinctive voice. It's almost like an old fashioned radio voice, which I thought in a way worked really well with the feeling of the book and the theater of the book and this kind of nostalgic overall feel that it has and a nostalgia that the characters feel during the book. And on the other hand, he sounded a little old for me because Ray isn't that old. He has a five-year-old child, and so he's maybe 30, 35 years old. He's not 60. Yeah, this time when I read it, I was older than him. And last time when I read it, like I read it a couple times, I was younger than him. And yeah. And the audio narrator is, it was like listening to somebody call a game on the radio. Yeah. And so in a way, I was like, yeah, it's just like hearing somebody call a game on the radio. So it works great for that. And on the other hand, I thought, he sounds older than... Ray Kinsella is. And I was like, well, maybe I'll imagine it as time has passed because this book came out in, what, 1982? Yeah, it's so, so maybe I'm listening to it now and Ray is telling me the story now about what happened to him in 1982. And once I did that in my head, I was better with it. It was okay for me. You like put your own layer of magic realism. Right, I did. So Ray is telling me the story now as an older man about what went down in Which Iowa. Which helps because this is a pre-cell phone book. It is a pre-cell phone book where he just disappears into America in the middle of the growing season and doesn't call his wife very often. Those were like the parts where I had to like suspend my belief. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I think people used to do that pre-cell phone days. Um, I mean, I used to, I went to college in Texas and I would go home to South Dakota in the summers and I would drive home across America for three days with no cell phone. I would just disappear into America and everybody assumed I was going to come out the other side. So maybe, maybe this is just a world we have forgotten we were okay with at the time. Which makes it interesting to read about also because then we have to decide if it was real or fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Mm. Um, so I have seen the movie several times, but had never read the book before. So I was very interested in how different the book is from the movie and how you have to change the story or adapt it to make it work in a movie format. Yeah, you have to take a lot of stuff out anytime you turn a book into a movie. Um, so it was interesting to see where they focused and which parts left and which characters got kind of condensed down or removed all the way. Right. Like 
uh, J.D. Salinger turns into James Earl Jones and the oldest living Chicago Cub, Eddie, is cut altogether. Whereas... Ray's brother's cut. Ray's brother's cut altogether, but um, his wife Annie's brother gets a much bigger role. Yeah, because he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. Hmm. So... Is this mostly about baseball? Is it mostly about fathers and sons? Is it mostly about cornfields? I don't know. It's not mostly about cornfields, probably. Uh, But it seems to be, I don't know. Like the synopsis would have me believe it's about one of those things. In a way, it was about... To me, what I got out of it, it was about people's dreams and whether or not they chase them and to what extent they chase them. Do you give up your dreams and get a new one like the doctor? Do you follow it to the bitter end regardless of whether you might lose everything like Ray does? Do you withdraw from those dreams because the price is too high like Salinger do you fail at your dream so you make up a new reality like Eddie? So those are the things that I was thinking about in terms of the price of dreams and whether or not you're willing to pay that price. Yeah, the description of like a remarkable story about fathers and sons, love and family, like there's a lot of really dysfunctional relationships. There's a lot of failure. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of this book showing like here are the repercussions of these decisions and what it looks like when your family does and doesn't support you in them. I mean, it's good they don't put all that on the back. One thing that I was interested in in the book thematically versus the movie is the concept of fathers and sons. Because in the book, Ray Kinsella, you know, he finally, he knows from the beginning that he wants his catcher, as he calls him, his dad, to show up and play on the team so he can see him again. And he's working toward that goal and trying to convince Shoeless Joe and the other players to bring in the catcher and give him a trial. But once the catcher's there, he can't bring himself to interact with him at all. He'll hide from him. He can't talk to him. But even after Ray gets his brother to where his brother can see things and share the magic, they only have one very short conversation with their father, which is the, I like the way you catch a game. And they decide not to tell their father who they are, even though the baseball players understand that this field is magic and that they're from the past and that there's a different reality outside it. They don't choose to say, look, later on in your life, you're going to make us and we exist. And this is, so I don't know that they ever, maybe they have a chance to connect with their father, but I don't know that they've given their father a chance to connect with them. So you're able and it, it's so strange because what if what they're doing is giving their father the chance to experience what it would have been like if he didn't have them. Right. And like as men, they're letting their father play out the fantasy that they might have of what their lives would be different if they didn't have families or just And plus Ray's brother in the distant past has had a huge relationship break with his father and left and never saw his father again. So since Ray has seen his father and he left 
parted on bad terms, the father has died. So you would think if we're talking about relationships between fathers and sons that you would want the book to help to heal that relationship. And maybe it heals the relationship from the point of view of Ray's brother, who's, was it Richard? Richard. I think so. Right? So he may feel some healing because he gets to see his father in his new way or speak to him again. But there's no healing for the father who, you know, can't, doesn't get to make that relationship choice on whether or not he still wants a relationship with this person or to one more time, even if it's, if it's as a, a spirit to, to connect and give and receive love with this child again. No, because the healing for the father is like to get to play baseball. So playing baseball is more important than his second life? I don't know. <laughs> it's tricky. It is tricky. It's like, you know, rings within rings. I'm trying to decide those things. Right? And I mean, when the author, I mean, almost kind of like Jane Austen, when the author doesn't fill it all in for us, and then we fill in what we think was missing for these people or what we wish they would have said or done. It then fills in like what we want to do vicariously, but like in a tricky way. Authors are tricky. But the other baseball players in the book do have goals or choices that are resolved. Shoeless Joe just loves baseball and just wants the ability to play baseball again, even under the constraints that he has of never being able to leave the baseball field, right? Or having somebody buried in in left field and having to run over the hump to get, you know, right. to catch the ball. And uh, the doc, he has the ability to walk as a ghost of himself, right? Of him as the doctor, him as a baseball player, and to make a choice that baseball was really great and I really loved it and I will always look back on it well, but being a doctor is really the trajectory of my life that's more important. And Eddie is able to, who never secretly, this is a big spoiler, ever really played for the Chicago Cubs, gets a chance right. to, to do it and see if it would have worked and see it be a disaster and find out that his love of the game or his self-worth is transcends whether or not he has an infinite ERA. So all those other baseball players have resolution to their pain or problem or, or arc um, and maybe it's enough for Ray and Richard to get to look and, and see their father be a baseball player and get to see him as a, a strong and vibrant and young and hopeful person versus the later father, broken down varietal. Yeah, I don't know. <sighs> so, but there's clearly a lot going on here. <laughs> yes. And, and it's all like weird. And so this is where like discussing books gets weird like wp kinsella um like wrote himself almost into as a character in mm -hmm. this book and like the kinsella character name that's really in salinger is really in salinger and and then the author made his last name be a name in the book of the main character and right to the point that because maybe it's because it was on audiobooks so i didn't like see the cover and I've never read another book by this person. I thought his name was Ray for most of the time, instead of William, which is what it really is, I think. So I thought his name was Ray for a while. And it kind of reminded me of 
this concept of story truth versus factual truth. Uh, and Oscar authors masquerading as characters in their own story and, and presenting themselves to you as a fictional version of themselves, uh, which I was reminded of Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, which is a book I resisted reading for a long time and read and really love, and it's got so much going on. But Tim O'Brien does that. He tells most or all of the stories in the book from the point of view of Tim O'Brien. But it is a story truth, Tim O'Brien. For example, the Tim O'Brien in a book has a daughter. Real, real world Tim O'Brien does not have a daughter. Um, Tim O'Brien in the book uh, kills a man or not, depending on which of the stories in the book you're going with at the time. But uh, reality Tim O'Brien says that he did not. Real Tim O'Brien and story Tim O'Brien both went to Vietnam, which is what inspired the whole book to begin with. And you get put in like a truth blender, you know. And then by the time you get poured out into your glass, you don't know anymore what's true and what's not true. How much of Ray Kinsella is the same as William Kinsella? And how much are we working through in this book over his own true feelings about baseball? and Or fathers. Or fathers. Or any of the rest of it. That's all tricky. It is. And I know we were talking about Tim O'Brien because I referenced, I just learned about him in a writing workshop with the poet Melissa Fye Johnson um, a couple weekends ago, maybe last weekend. Um, And she referenced, um, you know, what she had learned from Tim O'Brien and his writing and teaching passages from his work. Um, And I think as writers, that is, I don't know, I can't decide if it's more vulnerable or safer to use that story truth and put yourself in as a fake character so everybody knows for sure that some of the things you're doing is fake? Because otherwise I think there's that temptation for readers to say, oh, these are her mother issues coming through. How, no I, matter who your character there is. There you go. I've had um, students reading the things they carried and some of them get really upset with Tim O'Brien over time because they're like, they feel like he's lying to you. Once you find out that you know, he made it all up, everything is, is his true experience filtered through story truth and made into something that didn't actually factually happen to him, but emotionally happened to him. They feel mad about it. And then other students love it. So uh, I don't know. Certainly, when you're a writer, people look at your work and try to see you through it. But even doing the writing workshop with Melissa Fight Johnson, knowing that she was coaching us towards that story truth more than write the actual truth, um, it freed the people in the room. Sure. To be the story truth version. Mm -hmm. It was really, it was a really interesting experience. Like I said, coming into this book cold as I was and not knowing anything about W.P. Kinsella and thinking his name was Ray, I followed it, swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. It read more like a memoir to me than anything else, but except with magic. But after I finished it, I did go like look him up because you had mentioned in passing that he was a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. And this got me to thinking about lots of other stuff. But also, so I went and looked him up and I discovered he's a Canadian He's not from Iowa, 
which I presume that he was, um, because although we love our Canadian neighbors and we allow that they have some baseball teams up in Canada, it isn't really their national game. They're hockey people, not baseball people. Um, so I don't know whether the real W.P. Kinsella is as crazy about baseball for one reason or another as Ray Kinsella is, or whether it can have the meaning to him that it has to the character in this book, where it's central to his like childhood existence and identity is baseball. Yeah. Or if, I mean, I'm just playing with this idea, right? But like if he was at the Iowa writers workshop in the middle of Iowa in the summer, surrounded by cornfields and looking for a (laughs) plot theme about betrayal or about, you know, looking for a plot theme that somehow fit with shoeless Joe. And then that became about baseball. It could be. Alex, I had looked him up. And yes, baseball seems to be a major theme of his writing overall. Uh, And the other major theme is that he has some works that are written from the point of view of a native person in Canada, which has gotten him in some hot water over whether or not it's okay for you to write from the point of view of a member of, I think maybe Paiute tribe, I can't remember, or whether that was cultural appropriation and you should not do it. But it seems those seem to be the two major themes of his work. Um, I don't know. It could be that you're sitting in the middle of Iowa and you got to write something, so you write an Iowa book. Yeah. Well, and he got into a little bit of trouble putting J.D. Salinger in He did. Book, he did. I was like, that is because... I mean, that was a like, real-life living author that he wrote in as a character. And still alive at the time. Yeah. I was interested in that, and I thought, you know, I, I also go to a lot of writers' workshops, and people are very worried about copyright infringement and permissions and getting sued and stuff like that. And I thought it was pretty gutsy to include J.D. Salinger who probably doesn't want to be a book character and put all these thoughts and words in his mouth, uh, particularly with him being alive. Well, yeah. And, and make him have faults and make him, I mean, it wasn't just, Oh, and we like JD Salinger (laughs) and we're going to save JD Salinger from himself. himself. Yes. Maybe the real one doesn't want to be saved. It actually reminded me of, I'm from South Dakota originally and South Dakota Public radio used to have a thing on their fundraising times where every dollar that you gave them, you could get one vote toward who you thought should be South Dakota's favorite composer. And you could name anybody you wanted. And then whoever won, whoever had the most dollars contributed in their name, they'd make them for that year South Dakota's favorite composer and make t-shirts with their picture on them that said South Dakota's favorite composer on them and so forth. And one year... Aaron Copeland won it, and he was still alive. And this threw South Dakota Public Radio into a a flutter because they're like, he's not dead, and you can't be putting people's picture, you know, on there. We're used to to you all picking people who've been dead 200 years, and they're all out of copyright, and it does not matter. So they're like, what do we do now? We promised people we'd make these T-shirts, and he's the fair and square winner. He was 100 years old or something. But in the end, they just contacted him and said, you know, here's the deal. How about it? And he said, it's fine with me as long as you send me a T-shirt. So, um, you know, 
but certainly a writer. So it could work out. It could work out, but it might not work out. But that was more like an off-the-cuff thing that happened as opposed to sitting down and deciding, I'm going to take J.D. Salinger and make him a fictional character without asking first. Right, and I'm going to write the consent into the book, into his character, where I convince him in the book in the to book. go along with this plan. Right. So it's I was very tricky. Wow, uh, dazzled by that. So, so baseball. Does this put you in the mood oh, for baseball? Everything puts me in the mood for baseball. So I, you know, we have the long, the long dark winter of hockey and basketball to get through for me before we get to have baseball, which is starting early this year. So that's good. Uh, but I no longer have. Uh, any form of cable television that might give me live baseball games. So I need you to tell me how can I get all the baseball that I want without cable television? Um, I mean, I don't really watch baseball on TV. Do you listen to it on the radio? Um, well, yes. I, for like, I think $20 a year, get the MLB at bat app uh-huh. on my phone. And then for the whole year, you can listen to every broadcast radio game while it's being broadcast. Of every, any, game. any every game. That's good. I did of any team. download an app that gives me radio stations around the world so that I could listen to the Cubs on the radio on WGN uh, AM. I think it's AM seventy that broadcasts Cubs games in Chicago, so I can. Listen in. That's basically what I do is I listen to KMOX in St. Louis because then the announcers are right. Are right. And they're, and they're partisan, which is very important. It you is. know, I don't, the game's all wrong. Yeah. I don't want to hear nice things about the other team. That's that's bogus. But the real um, Yeah, because the MLB at, at, at Bat app will let you choose like which broadcast even for a certain oh, game. Oh, that's nice. I get to hear, yeah. hear, hear it right because I don't want to hear about the good characteristics of people who are not on my team. Very good. So that would be my recommendation because then it's like an audio book um, of baseball. I'll do that. And, and, you know, I do listen to a ton of audio because then I can do other things like work in my garden or whatever while I am being entertained by the game. So, and I do love baseball on the radio. It sounds good. Um, it's how it should sound. It, yeah, sounds right. Although I do love uh, watching the friendly confines where I can see everybody as well. So that's good, because sometimes. Well, and I have some baseball tickets for this year, so we can go to a game. That sounds good. I love baseball tickets. I do go. I went. I think just to one game last year, uh, but we had great seats, and the sunset was perfect, and it looked, you know, like Spielberg had filmed it. It was so epic. And that's what's important. <laughs> I mean, and if your team scores and things, but there you go. So I did have one complaint about Shoeless Joe. Okay. That I want to talk to you about, which is that uh, the one thing that disturbed me all the way through the audiobook is that this book fails hard on the Betchdale test. Do you know? Uh, so hard. And you know what yes. the Betchdale test is? That, yes. Okay. That's the, a book that has two women have a conversation that is not about a man or the man's things, right? It's problems. So there's a, hardly any women in this book at all, but also every, I swear to you, every single time that Ray references his wife, whether she is in the scene with him or he's just thinking about her while he's away or whatever. And every description of her, every reference, every description, every interaction with her is in terms of either how much she loves him or his 
sexual desire for her. Every description of her is about her tongue, her breasts, her thighs, her freckles, all of it, always. Um, yeah. And that I just me. wanted to read more about baseball. Me too. And I'm like, like, I'm like, Ray, come on. I mean, even in terms of their relationship, it's like he talks about how he overheard her in a conversation where other girls in the conversation were talking about what they want to be when they grow up. I want to be a brain surgeon, astronaut, whatever. But Annie was just like, I want to marry Ray, be with Ray. And always he's just thinking about, like there was a point I think where like, they're kissing and her tongue is counting his teeth. And I was like, ah, yeah, was like, like I a hundred percent agree that those scenes were like, I couldn't skip them because they were on audiobook <laughs> and like, and they're short made me like want to see more baseball. Right. Right. And they're short. There's just a sentence here and a sentence there, but it's every like, introduction of Annie. Like, you know, when you're writing a book, you'll have character markers to remind your reader. Oh, this is this character again. Right, and keep them straight in my head. These are the characteristics that they have. And Annie's characteristics are always how sexy she is to him, you know. Right. Yeah, and how devoted she is to him. Right. Never. I feel like it builds him up, and it's written to build him up. Like, Ray's not crazy. Like, this is magic realism, and Ray's life is great, and his wife loves him, and he's sexually desirable, and like nothing's wrong with him because this is all normal and uh, it just made me want to watch some baseball. It made me feel like he was abnormal, Lissa. Abnormal. Well, but, yeah. <laughs> but but I feel like it was in there to reassure us reassure, that he yeah. was normal. Yeah. And he loves me. And he loves him so he can't be a total whack job. But he never discusses like what an awesome job Annie must be doing to grow all the corn while caring for their child while he's gone all summer. Off on his baseball well, fantasy. Off her entire family who yes. want her to leave him. Yes, who did openly. That's yeah. the plot. They've never liked him. They want him gone. She can do better without him. And he never stopped to think, man, Annie is the bee's knees. She's doing a great job being a supportive spouse to me when some people might think I'm bananas, like her entire family and my entire family and everybody around. Um, but it, 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 it like stopped me in my tracks every time that came around and yeah and the last question i have for you about this book is given the publishing landscape and the kind of book that this is do you think that this book could get published today i already asked you about this pride and prejudice which is full of darlings and long letters this book is full of big lush lyrical writing that's very moody which i thoroughly enjoyed and really loved but it doesn't move the plot forward and it is a mid-list book that's hard to explain to people um it doesn't have big flashy action it nothing blows up nobody's being chased so do you think that wp Kinsella could publish this book today and make it a classic no Huh. So what are we going to do if we lose books like this? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's so, and maybe I'm totally wrong. I mean, but it's so, it takes you on such a trip 
while pretending to be grounded in such a reality. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you that I don't think this book is publisher now, even coming out of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is an obvious, it's almost like a free ticket. If you go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, it has such cachet in the writing world that if you can say to an agent and your agent can say to a publisher, my writer is graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, it's like a free ride. Um, And to support this theory, I will point you to the Divergent Allegiant and whatever the other one is books are, which I don't think I didn't like them at all. And but they're coming out of the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'm sure maybe it's Chicago. Anyway, they're coming out of one of the big M- writing MBAs. So they're getting a, a free look, an extra bonus point. Um, and I feel like this book probably got extra bonus points because he's coming out of that, that made it possible for him to publish it in that early 1980s publishing landscape before there was, boy, the huge expansion and blow up of cable television and then a new world of streaming services and podcasts and any radio station in the world and so forth that has cluttered people's lives to the point where their book publishers are thinking, I need a a guaranteed winner, you know. And... People don't rally around baseball the same way. No, they don't. Baseball had all kind of scandals since Shoeless Joe. Like, right? I mean, between yeah. Shoeless Joe and when he wrote this in the 80s, Shoeless Joe was still a huge scandal. Right. Whereas right? you as a Cardinals fan and me as a Cubs fan, I think we were both in up to our ears in the steroid scandals uh, yeah. that came along in the early 90s or mid 90s. Uh, that Well, in the mid 90s were the st- was the strike. Yeah. And then the steroid scandal was after, after that. After that, like, right. Yeah, but some, other... suddenly Mark McGuire is like twice his size and hitting the covers off the ball. You're like, huh, I don't, those natural supplements he's taking are really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know if the rallying would be the same. And I don't know what, what else you would do for a book where everybody would rally around the same thing the same way. Unless it's just that that endless desire for nostalgia which have, which like Ready Player One, which we've decided is the same book as this one. Uh, yeah. Ready Player One has that, that wishing for nostalgia or wishing for your reality to reference a time that you view as better than a time that you're in now, which is what this book is doing too. But Ready Player One for me, like I don't know if we've talked about this in depth in our lives, but when I read it the first time I loved it, and then when I read it, like, five years later when the movie came out, suddenly, like, my view of, like, equity and dystopia in the ah. world had changed so radically, and my view of privilege had changed so radically that I didn't like it the second time. Right, because it's a pre-we-need-diverse-books-own-voices um, world book. Uh, and, yeah. and, and you wanted different things from it then than you got and I was like, well, what about the rest of the 1980s? Yeah. Who gets to choose that this is the view? And <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if you're going to reinvent your childhood in a way, is it fair to remember just the good parts and not the bad parts? Or just the parts, even if those were the only parts you knew, to only re- make everyone remember just the parts you knew. Right. Instead of doing due diligence on, on the reality, the whole thing. Although in Shoeless Joe here, Right, we acknowledge that all of his White Sox players were part of the Black Sox scandal, 
and the throwing of the World Series or possible throwing of the World Series. But he really writes them. Um, doesn't nobody gets any a blame? We're supposed to feel bad for Shoeless Joe Jackson, right? Yeah. That he was robbed by this, and that he never meant it any of it, and he should have been forgiven, and he should get into the Hall of he Fame. Just wanted to play baseball. Just wants to play baseball, but he stopped short of exonerating all of the other players on his team who come back, who are all the same Black Sox, who yeah. maybe were in it for the money, even if baseball, Major League Baseball, as an entity at the time, was not being fair to its players and was not giving you a living wage or, or what you need to allow you to play baseball and financially survive. Um, he doesn't seek to exonerate the actions of any of the others other than Shoeless Joe Jackson. Hmm. That's tricky. It is. These books are very slippery. All of they them. Are slippery. <laughs> they leave us feeling <laughs> like enamored and yet tricked at the same time. That's right. Which is probably to their author's credit, and why we're still reading and discussing them. Probably. That's what. Maybe that's what makes a book a classic, because it keeps, even if even if your view of it changes in a way that your view of Ready Player One changed. 10 years later, maybe it's still giving you something, still giving you thoughts in your head and, and um, coming to oh, it, yeah. coming to it differently. Way more thoughts about it the second time. They were less favorable, <laughs> but it made me think about all of those things in much greater detail. There you go. So maybe that's what this book is. Sometimes when you read Shoeless Joe, it's giving you baseball when you need baseball because it's February or whatever. And then sometimes it's giving you uh, relationship things and sometimes it's giving you what it is to be a writer and sometimes uh, it's giving you whatever that thing is that you need you can come to it and see it sign of a good classic the sign of a classic Well, Lissa, it's probably time for us to wrap this up so we can go and dream about baseball. Next time, we'll be reading Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey, which is coming out in summer 2019, discussing how our Camp NaNoWriMo went, and discussing readers interacting with authors on social media. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.